0: Hi, Chris Vallotton here. Welcome to my podcast, where I hope to inspire you to walk in your royal identity in Christ and experience God's goodness in every area of your life. I hope you enjoy this message today. And if you're looking for more resources, check out chrisvallotton.com. Why don't you grab a hand and we'll pray. Holy Ghost, guess you can still get a date, a tribe. I don't know. be careful, there may be some rules I don't know about here. Lord, I, b- I bless uh, every single person in this room. I pray that out of this room would come um, world-renowned leaders, history makers, world-class leaders. I pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, I want to tell you, like, my my one, the, my greatest ambition in life, I mean, I have, obviously I want to have my children, my grandchildren all prosper, all those things. But they're all, for me, a manifestation of uh, becoming a world-class leader. Like, I, my goal in life is someday to be a world-class leader. I know that I'm not. I know that I'm not. So I'd be very clear. Like, I understand that I have uh, a long ways to grow. But uh, this has been um, something I, I have um, desired since I was probably 20. And I owned my first business at 22, and owned nine businesses after that. And uh, it used to be, you know, nowadays you got everything, you know, is on downloads, but we used to have cassette players. You know what a cassette player is? It has a little plastic thing, and it spins. And that's what we have when I was was, uh, growing up, and and during, well, we had 4-Track when I was really growing up. Well, we had nothing when I was really young. Then we had four-track, then we had eight-track, then we had a cassette player, and then we had C- DVDs and CDs and all this other crazy. But uh, anyway, I, what I was going to tell you is I was on, a, I used to be on, used to get uh tape of the week. You know, we didn't have downloads and YouTube and all of these other things. So I was on tape of the week for years. Leadership tape of the week was secular um, organization put it out. I think you spent like $100 a year or something and they sent you every week, or may, it might have been every other week, they sent you a tape on leadership. And, and uh, for a long, long time, I would read, I don't know, 20, 30 books a year on, just on leadership, mostly on mostly secular leadership, because I, I felt like most uh, Christian books were pretty much, if you got servant leadership down, you pretty much have read most every Christian book on leadership. like It's just like, be humble and, and be quiet and die. And okay, you got that? Good to go. <laughs> And so, uh, and I, I'm exaggerating a little bit. John Maxwell is a great uh, teacher, and I, it was my honor to meet him a couple years ago, and I would love to actually get to know him better. But anyway, um, I, I, do, I do have, uh, I do have a, a lot to say on things I'm learning. So I want to talk to you about the laws of leadership, and we, we won't finish this message tonight. It's, uh, I probably have uh, 15 laws of leadership, but I'd like to just uh, give you a few, as much time as we have and uh, I if you'll turn to John chapter ten, I want to first talk about the law of ownership. Law. These laws aren't necessarily in any order of priority, like which is the most important. Um, I just started uh, about six months ago writing down all the things I learned, and I was just arranging my notes and so this is uh, this is someday heading towards a book but so I, I want to talk about the law of ownership first. John chapter ten, verse eleven. You'll, you'll, these verses will be um, really uh, familiar to you. This is Jesus talking about uh, the shepherd and the sheep and taking care of sheep. And, he's, and so we're jumping in on the middle of verse uh, 11. John chapter 10, verse 11. He is, who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them, and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and he is not concerned about the sheep. Can I just read it one more time to you? He who is a hired hand and not the shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees speaking of the shepherd because he is not because he is a hired hand and not concerned about the sheep. And I want to say that one of the most powerful principles that I've learned of leadership is ownership. You tend to take care of what belongs to you. I could give you so many uh, examples. I I bet you can even think of them as I'm talking right now. Like uh, you, you typically don't want to buy a former rental car. You can drive down in a big city, you can drive down the road, and you can tell where the rental houses stop, and where the people own houses. Yep. The difference is, is, has everything to do with, you tend to take care of what belongs to you. Yep. And so, the, so what I'm getting at is like, one of the most powerful principles, one of the most powerful things leaders do, is they transfer ownership from them to the people they're leading so that the people that are leading actually have ownership of whatever it is they're leading. The challenge is, you know, somebody once said, you can get a lot done if you take credit for nothing. So the question is, how do I get, how do I get people to not be hirelings, but to be the shepherd in this, in this verse? Jesus said, the guy who's a shepherd, he sees a wolf coming. Well, Jesus didn't actually say this. He just he just alluded to it. the guy who's a shepherd and sees the sheep uh, sees the wolf coming, he is not going to let that wolf take that sheep without a fight. But the hireling goes, "I don't get paid enough to do this." Think about what happens in ownership. Think about David, King David. David is famous for killing a lion and a bear. He's actually famous for killing Goliath. What did he do long before he killed a giant? He killed the lion and the bear. Why did he do that? Because unlike the shepherd that Jesus is talking about, the hireling, he took ownership of the sheep and ultimately he became a king because he took ownership of something that belonged to someone else. But he said, I'll, ta- I'll do that i 'll do this job as if those sheep are my sheep, and ultimately God said then i 'll let you shepherd my people. Wow. Wow. I think ownership is such a powerful uh, principle, and I think about Nehemiah. I love the story of nehemiah we 're going to talk uh, uh, quite a bit about that in the next few minutes. Nehemiah let me just let me lay out the challenge. Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king. Now some people say well that meant that Nehemiah tasted the food before the king ate it. And that kind of sounds like he was like, kind of like the servant to the chef or something. It wasn't like that. The cupbearer was like a a counselor to the king and trusted, uh, and trusted commandant to the king. He was living, um, I don't know if you know this, but uh, you know the queen that Esther served? You know the, I'm sorry, you know the king that Esther served as queen? That was the King that uh, Nehemiah served, Exusius. And when he hears that Jerusalem, his hometown, his home city, his home country, is in trouble, he immediately goes into prayer. And, that, and we're, we're not going to talk much about prayer tonight. But the Lord and the king send him back to his own land to build the walls around his city Jerusalem and set up the gates. Now, you're like, this isn't like a wall gate project like a beautification project. These walls were common around cities and they determined this is before planes, you know, bombs, that sort of thing. So, if you didn't have a wall around your city, it'd be like having owning a house with no doors or windows. So people could just come and go and the way that they kept cities safe in those days is they'd build a wall completely around the city, and they'd set up gates. And so when we think of Nehemiah's walls and gates, we're thinking of, we're, we're talking about the fact that their, their city was, um, was easily looted, and there was no protection. It was like living in the harshest ghettos. And they had rebuilt the, um, they had already built the temple. Are you bored already? So the interesting thing is, let me get to the point. For 114 years the walls were broke down. 114 years. For 72 years, they tried to rebuild the walls around the city without finishing one wall or setting up one gate in 72 years. Nehemiah arrives on the scene. Now, this is this is really powerful to me. Nehemiah has never built a wall. He's never built a gate. He's not a contractor. He's not a, he's not a, a brick worker or, a, or a, a, a rock worker. He's not a steel worker. He's never built a thing. He shows up on the scene, and we'll back into the story in just a minute, and what they couldn't do in 72 years, he completes in 52 days. Think about that. In 52 days, they rebuilt the entire wall around Jerusalem. so The walls were so wide in those days, they raced chariots on them. We're not talking about a little wall. We're talking about a major project. And what they couldn't do in 72, days, uh, 72 years, he did in 52 days. That's amazing, especially when you've never built a wall in your life. Now, here's the really amazing thing to me, at least as a leader. He doesn't bring another team in to rebuild the walls. Yes, he did get some materials from a king. But he uses the builders that were trying to rebuild the walls for 72 years. Those are the same builders he used to rebuild the walls in 52 days. I'm saying, do you get this is the art of leadership. What these people couldn't do in 72 years, in 52 days, with the same people, a man who's never built a wall in his life rebuilds the entire wall in 52 days. That you you got to think, there's no, there's no tractors, there's no cranes. We're talking about complete manual labor. How does this man do it? I, I think of Nehemiah as a, a conductor in an orchestra. You know, a conductor often, I've actually never met a conductor, so if you guys know a lot about conductors, just pretend this is true. <laughs> I mean, in my mind, a conductor doesn't play an instrument. A conductor possibly can't sing. But the conductor understands how music is made. And he is the orchestrator of the people who are talented and able to do things he can't even do. And he gets everybody on the same page. Now, all right, look at Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 16. This is oh, we're jumping right in the book, right in the middle of the book, and so I'll kind of fill in for those of you that may not know this story very well. And by the way, I, I really want if you if you uh, aspire to be a great leader, you should read the book of Nehemiah, at least from chapter one to chapter six. Like it's it's a short read, you can probably read that in a half an hour. It's profound. And you're going to see a whole bunch of mirroring in the spirit realm. Because Nehemiah has three enemies, Sambella, Tobiah, and Gershom. And when, when Nehemiah engages in his destiny, he begins to inspire resistance. It is so profound for you and me. Because I often think that lots of people have peace because they're not doing anything. And the other thing that's really inspiring is a lot of times we think that we are resisted because we're doing something wrong. And I'd like to propose that most often we're resisted because we're doing something right. And so, uh, so we're picking up kind of in the middle of the story. Verse 16, the officials did not know. It. Let me just grab it here. I think it's uh, better here. In uh, chapter 2. So uh, verse 11, let's just go to verse 11 in chapter 2. What verse did I tell you to go to? 16. I came to Jerusalem and I was there three days. I arose at night. And by the way, I want to stop and say this. Great leaders rise in the night. If you can't rise in the night, you're not going to be a great leader. I'm not talking about dark. I'm talking about in dark times. When everyone else is running from the battle, if you want to be a leader, you will run towards the battle. When everyone else is crapping their pants, that's the time you'll step up and you'll say, not on my shift. This is what great leaders do. If you can't take criticism, you will never be a great leader. People ask us all the time, and uh, I know, and I I understand that a lot of this is directed directly at Bill, uh, and and, uh, a lot to me, but they're like, how do you guys, how do you guys survive all of the scrutiny that you get every day? Like, there was a really bad article just came out today, and some other news, and they sent me a copy of it, like, thank you, Jesus, thank you for the encouragement. Uh, People are like, how do you guys survive this? I'm like, I don't survive, I thrive it. I would be so worried if I wasn't making somebody nervous, you know? If you can't rise at night, you're not going to be a great leader. It's that simple. If you, if you are, and listen, people are like, you're so brave. I'm not brave. I just don't quit. I, I, let me say it differently. Some, uh, I do believe I'm brave. I don't believe I'm fearless. I I get, I feel a lot of anxiety, lots of times. People call, I had an interview with a newspaper today, I never trust those guys. I mean, (laughs) I I just never trust those guys. I understand that, you know, people don't watch traffic, they watch an accident. So, you know, I'm like, I understand what it takes to draw attention to something, and you're you're in the business of selling advertisement, and that means you have to create an accident somewhere. So I I, I get all that, but I, I mean, I do feel anxiety, I just don't let it tell me what to do. So I think that fear, I think courage is just fear that said its prayer. So people often say of, of courageous people, oh, that man's fearless. And the only fearless people I know are all, they're all psychos. I know a few fearless people, but it's because something's like, there's a screw loose. There's something broken upstairs. I don't consider those people normal, you know. So you have to be able to rise at night. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting in my mind to do for Jerusalem, and there was no animal with me except for the animal which I was riding. Um, I I just love this part because part of leadership is being alone. Now, I know they say it's lonely at the top and all this crap. You know, if it's lonely at the top, you should have made some friends where you're at the bottom. You don't want it to be lonely up top, but I'm saying there are times when you have to separate yourself from even your friends and accountability. It might be for a week or it might be for a few hours, but you just got to get, you got to, you got to separate yourself from everyone else's opinion and just, okay, God, what are we doing? Now, I, I understand it has to be tested. I really believe a, a lot in accountability, but there are just seasons. And by the way, I don't think it's like, I should leave the church for six months to, Find God. I'm on the path. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was funny. Anyway, I'm not talking about any of that. I'm just talking about there are days when you need to just get alone and figure out what the heck you're supposed to be doing. And so this is Nehemiah. He was alone. Verse 13 I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and onto the refuge gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down in skates which were consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, and there was no place for my mount to pass. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall, and I entered the valley gate again in return. And the officials did not know where I had gone and what I had done, nor had I yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who did the work. Verse 17, Then I said to them, You see the bad situation we are in. If you have a Bible, I would circle the word we. I wanted to show you the, the number one reason why Nehemiah was successful. And it's all through the first six chapters of the book. He says, do you see the bad situation we are in? Now, I want to remind you that Nehemiah is personally not in a bad situation. He's actually a cupbearer to a king in another nation. He's living in the palace, sipping suds with the king. The only reason he's in a bad situation is because he made a choice to be. But my point is, he immediately identifies with them as he doesn't have, he didn't say, you see the bad situation you are in? I just surveyed your walls. You guys are in deep trouble. He said, you see the bad situation we are in? What I'm getting at is if you want people to take ownership, you need to take ownership of the problem. If you want people to take ownership of the solution, you need to take ownership of the problem you see the bad situation we are in that Jerusalem is desolate? The gates are burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. He didn't say, so you guys won't be a reproach. He immediately made himself a part of the problem. He says, we're in trouble. All of us are in trouble. He's trying to inspire them to rebuild their walls, but he does it by making it his problem. I told him how the hand, I love this part. I told him how the hand of my God had been favorable to me And about the king's words, which he had spoken to me. And they said, I love this part. Then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. But when Sambalath the Horabite and Tobiah, the Amorite, and the official, and Gershom, the Arab, heard of it, they mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are they rebelling against the king? So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will rise and build. But you have no portion, right, or memorial in it. I love this part because, first of all, he identifies with their pain. And secondly, he says he begins to tell them about the favor of God on his life for them. And they, I I love it. I I, I have a great imagination Do you guys too. And I imagine that he's sharing, like, so gotta think, 114 years, walls are down, 72 years. You know, people are looting their houses. There's you have to understand, it's like living in a ghetto, like where the police are afraid to go. Like, there's no safety. They have this beautiful temple that's worth millions of dollars, the most expensive building in the history of the world, at least square foot-wise. The original temple was only, was only 1,600 square foot, but it was made of gold, and it was a very expensive building. And they have this crazy expensive building... And it's definitely like the ghetto. You know how the ghetto is? like you got a real expensive neighborhood and that's right on the back of the neighborhood is all these people live in poor is like that. And so Nehemiah starts telling them about the favor of the king and how the king sent him and how he gave him letters to get materials from other kings, kingdoms. And as he's talking, I, I, I imagine like this, as he's talking, somebody goes, "Let's do this. Let's rise and build." And so they began to arise and build. Look at this uh, chapter 4. We're going to skip right to chapter 4. It came about when Sam Bell heard that we were rebuilding the wall, that he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. And by the way, it's such a good sign when you you have enemies. You know, Jesus Jesus said, love your enemies. So you have to have some. Part of the challenge in the body of Christ is nobody's against us. For the right reasons. And he spoke in the presence of his brothers and and the wealthy men in, of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? These are all things that we go through like when you start moving in your destiny, you, your first questions, the enemy just comes in and is like, you're not capable. You're not enough. You're not adequate you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Even if you finish it, it's going to fall down. The quality of your work, your motive's wrong. It just goes on and on and on. I love this chapter because it so reminds me of what I go through nearly every time we push forward in something. Does anyone else have deep sense of inadequacy? I do all the time. And the enemy's just feeding it. You're not enough. You have no education. What if the people the people aren't with you? People are mad at you. Look at these people. They all hate you. And I love how in uh, uh, Tobiah the Amorite says. By the way, Tobiah means good for nothing. The Amorite was near him, and he said, "Even if they are, even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, it would break their wall down." I love how Nehemiah responds. Oh God. Hear how we are despised. Return the the reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in the (laughs) land of captivity. That's a little Old Testament. (laughs) But he goes on. Now, verse 7. Now, when Tobias, Sambalot, the Arabs, the Amorites, the Ashdites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem. And listen to this and cause a disturbance inside of it. This is really important for the work of a great leader. Because when the enemy's attacks from the outside aren't working, he will begin to stir up brothers against brothers. I have found that often before you can fight Goliath, you have to take on your brother. Think about Joseph, great leader. What's the first thing that happened? His brothers are opposed to him. David, he wants to fight Goliath. What's the first thing that happens? His brothers are against him. Look at Jacob. His brothers are against him. What I'm getting at is that when the enemy can no longer take you out from the outside, he begins to mess with the people inside the family. And family member turns to family member. And often we think that we're in a war against one another, not realizing that it's the enemy stirring up trouble in our marriage, in our church with one another. And I love this. Um, verse 8. All of them conspired. I already read that. But we prayed to our God because of them, and we set up a guard against them day and night. Thus, in Judah, it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there is much rubbish, and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. Our enemies said they will, not, they will not know it or see it until, the, until we come against them, and we kill them, and we put a stop to the work. When the Jews who lived near came and told us ten times, they were going to come up against us from every place that we may turn. Then I stationed men in the lowest parts, in the spaces behind the walls, in the exposed places. I stationed people, get this, look at the word, in families, with swords, spears, and bows. I stationed them in families with swords, spears, and bows. When I saw their fear, I arose and I spoke to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people. I said, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. I want you to look at this one more time. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your what? Brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Do you realize they weren't building a wall? They were fighting for their family. Oh, Nehemiah said, "Everyone thinks we're building a wall, but you're actually fighting for your brothers, your sisters, your your your, your sons, your daughters. And what I'm getting at is that Nehemiah took them from building an abn an abundant object, a wall, a meaningless wall, to you're not building a wall, you're building a family." Now, what we didn't catch in chapter three, it's a long, really, really uh, lengthy kind of chapter with tons of names, is that Nehemiah stationed families. No, start over. They have this wall all around Jerusalem. You can kind of picture that it's miles and miles and miles long. This is a huge project. How does Nehemiah get each one of them to take ownership of it? He stations them, he puts them to work nearest their house. So if I, when I'm working on the wall, it's directly benefiting me. So me and my family, we're not working 50 miles from my home. We're working on the piece of the wall that's right next to my house. And he assigns tribes to work on the walls closest to their residence, so that as they're restoring the wall, they're improving their property value, and they're also taking ownership of the wall because the wall is actually protecting specifically their home. Are you with me? This is the whole book of Nehemiah. The whole book of Nehemiah, in my mind, the brilliance of Nehemiah is he took took a problem that was a governmental problem and he said, this isn't the government's responsibility, this is your responsibility. And he begins to take ownership from who's going to fix this, Who's going to take care of this problem? Who's going to feed these poor problems? These these poor. And he goes, hey, this is our problem. It's not their problem. What are you going to do about this? And he begins to be, if you will, a conductor orchestrating a building project in which he doesn't even know how to build, but he knows how to get people to take ownership of a problem as if it's their own. And they build in families, and really, we we, we can. Uh, I'll take the second half of this to talk about another principle, but I think this principle we could talk about all night. It's so powerful that he has them work in families. And what they did is, if you don't if you don't know the story, again, this is a story that will definitely keep your attention. I know a lot of Old Testament stories you kind of have to work through them, but this story will keep your attention. What they do is they station so everybody at least has. Uh, two people in every, in every workstation. So one guy's working and he's got his sword with him or his spear with him, but he's, he's working on the wall. Well, the, well someone, another person in the family is guarding him. And, when, and, and then they take a break and they shift and the guy who was guarding him, he works on the wall with his spear next to him, always, this, always the weapons next to him. And now the other guy is going to stand and protect him. When I say the other guy, it was daughters, sons, uncles, aunts, so the whole family. The whole family is either working on the wall or protecting, and they're rotating. I'm going to work now, and you're going to protect me. Okay, now you're going to work, and I'm going to protect you. And that's how they finished the wall. It was a family affair. Is that a beautiful story? The most profound part of the story is that Nehemiah was a genius at giving ownership to everyone. Instead of being the hero, he became the guide, and he made them the hero. It's an amazing story. Most leaders, and all of us have this temptation, if we're just going to be totally honest, most leaders want to get credit for anything, everything, and that's why we don't get anything done. I want to talk about four ways to transfer ownership. I'll just give you these very quickly. They're very simple. Lead people on a journey to your vision with questions that come to your conclusions. What I'm getting at is this. I have executive privilege on most of the teams I lead. In other words, I could come into the school ministry room and go, we're going to start an online school ministry. Okay, you, I want you to get working on that. This part, you do this. And they're going to be like, all right, you know, we got it. Chris got this idea. Let's get going. Or I could say, you know, there's millions of people who can't come to our school. Now, I know I have a vision for online school ministry. And by the way, this is a true story. I want to have the best online school ministry that the world has ever seen. If we're going to do it, I want it to be freaking amazing. Amazing. Now, it may not start amazing, because I'm always good with try and make it better and better. That's how I start. I don't, ever, I don't ever say, if we can't do it amazing at first, then let's not do it. I'm like, you know, if you, if you, can't, if you can't get it wrong, then you won't be able to get it right. So I, I go in school ministry, this is a true story, and I say, how are we going to touch these, these billions of people that can't come to school ministry? And there's all these other schools and they're teaching this crazy stuff and there's no hell and there's universalism and this school's drawing all this attention and what do you think we should do? And someone's like, wow, we could start an online school. Wow, that's a great idea. great idea. What I'm getting at is like, if that school's gonna be amazing, the team, you can't, I can't, listen, people tend to support what they help create. (laughs) They tend to resist what's created for them. So I might come in with, this is what I feel like we're supposed to do. But if I ask the right questions and we're supposed to do it, we'll come to the right conclusion. Yeah. So I'm like, well, how do you think we should do it? And someone says, oh, I think we should have the best. If we're going to do it, we need to have the best school in the world. That's a good point. We need to have the best school in the world. And I begin to ask questions like, how would you create the best school in the world? Well, you know, we need, we need chat rooms and we need, we need community. We need to create community online, not just to education, but we need... And we begin to have this conversation, and I'm inspiring the conversation with questions of a conclusion I've already come to. But it doesn't matter that I've come to the conclusion, because if we're going to actually do this, it needs everybody in the room needs to have ownership of it. And so how many understand that if I come and make decrees, I get, I get to own it, and you're my servant? How many know that it takes a lot of work to manage people who are doing your thing? Doesn't take a lot of work to manage people that are doing their thing. Number two, develop ideas with your team instead of for your team. I think I already said that. Number three, give people authority when you give them responsibility. Give people authority when you give them responsibility. Nothing's more frustrating for people to have a job that they have no authority to accomplish. Uh, when I was in auto parts business, well it was when I was in any business, but auto parts business is a great example. I mean, I, I say to our team, we first make a friend, then we make a customer, and then we sell a part, in that order. If I'm trying to sell a part first, it feels like every customer that comes in is a number. And I say to my team, mostly men in those days, guys, when a customer comes in with a problem, I want you to take care of the problem. I don't care how much money we make on that problem or if we even make money. I want you to make me a customer. Every time somebody comes in with a problem, you know this is a true statistic, that if you have a, if you, if a customer, no, start over. If a business has a customer that has a complaint and the business satisfies the complaint in a, in a way that the customer believes is satisfied, that that customer would be more loyal than he or she was bef- than before they had a complaint. Yeah. So complaints are good things; they bond us in life. So you know nothing's more frustrating t- than when uh, the people who have been um, who have been, who have the responsibility of solving the customer's problem don't have authority to do it. So you know how many times have you heard this when you have a problem? Well, the boss will be in it too. The boss will be in it too. Why does the boss have to be here for the employee to solve a customer's problem? Just solve the problem. So I, would, I, I just made a rule in my, in my shop. It's like, as long as it costs us $100 or less, you have authority. In other words, the part might be $500. And we take it back and we lose $50 on it. No big deal. As long as we don't lose more than $100 you don't need management's approval. Take care of the customer. I want the customer to feel like they're honored. I don't want the customer to feel like they're a problem. Yeah. And not only that, but I want you to do it with a smile. I want you to say, I'm sorry. And what if it's, not, what if it's, it's the customer's fault? I, he's a customer. Make a friend out of them. My point is, is that nothing's more frustrating than having a job to do and having no authority to do it. You want to make people owners. Number four, agree to end goals and core values, and let your team figure out how to accomplish the vision. I don't know if you like this way of leadership or not. This is my style. It drives some of our team completely batty. I do not like to tell people how to do things. I like to give people, okay, let's agree, what is it we're accomplishing? What is our budget? What are our values? Okay, what, what is it we're actually doing? Okay, go do it. If you need insight, if you, need, you need some, like if you've never done the job before, of course someone has to help you. But I don't like to micromanage people because I don't want a culture where I'm the owner. <laughs> Nothing's more frustrating than somebody over your shoulder all week long. Did you get that done yet? How are you going to do that? How come it took so long to do that? Leave me alone. (laughs) And by the way, sometimes I find, oftentimes I find, that people who have never done a job before will find another way to do it that no one's ever done before that's actually better than somebody who has experience. Now, obviously, if I see someone doing something dumb, I come, you know, uh, this happens all the time when when you operate the way I operate, and I say, okay, so what were you thinking when you did that? What I find is that oftentimes people had the wrong value. For instance, let's say uh, you, you're probably asked, you're thinking, what is he talking about? Sometimes people, like I, I'm a do it right, even if it costs more money. But some people come to work for me and they have a frugal, I don't mean it wrong or right. I mean, their, their, their core value is do it as good as you can for as little money as possible. So I say, why did we do that? Like why did we give that, you know, I, we're, we're we're trying to honor this person and I'm like, they got him a a, a 50 cent card and, and and a crappy gift. I'm like, why did you Okay, so what were you thinking when you got when you got that? I was like, well, they had these cards on sale and and it's da, da, da. and I'm like, oh, oh, okay. Well, listen, when we're honoring someone, I'd like them to feel it. Feel they got honored. So I don't want to buy them a $10 watch, Timex watch, down at the hardware store. I, I, want them to, I want to buy a gift that says, you're amazing. It doesn't have to be a Rolex watch, but, you know. And, and I, what I realized is that sometimes people, they're really trying to do the right thing, but they have different values. And I have to come back and say, this is my value for this. Or sometimes you're, you're, you're in the opposite value, you're like, hey, we just want to get this done." It's just da-da-da, I don't want to spend more than 50 bucks on it. You know, your frugal thing will work right here. But oftentimes people get to the wrong place because they have different core values than we do. And if you come in and say, don't do that, do this, you don't discover what the real problem is. Are you with me? In other words, you, okay, you fix that project, go, don't do that. Listen, don't buy that watch. Buy this $200 watch. Okay, now go get a $3 card. Okay, I fixed the problem, but I actually didn't teach my teammate what our values are, so the next time they're going to go do frugal again. I have to find out why they did it that way. Does that make sense? Okay, ownership. Okay, Uh, we have time. We have four minutes. I'll give you one more. The law of influence. This is super important. Uh, I, I feel like I need to preference it with, you should love everybody. Most of you don't know me very well, but we grew up helping the poor. They live with us. We lived 20 years in Weaverville. 18 of those years, poor people lived with us. Okay, so you need to hear what I'm about to say through a lens that I understand what it's like to actually love poor people. Are you with me? But who you let influence you is a big deal. And one of the things I've noticed is that sometimes we hang out with poor people and we take on their attitude instead of helping them take on the attitude of prosperity. And we begin to defend their right to be an idiot, if they are. I'm not saying the poor are an idiot, I'm saying if they are. We take on the reason, you know, let me say this, there's lots of reasons why people live homelessly or live poor. Some of them are mentally, very mentally ill, and I, I get all of that. And I've been, I've, I've been in the, the gamut and the extreme of being right in the middle of those people. Some people are just lazy. <laughs> Some people are just lazy. It's just true. They just don't want to work, and they go from house surfing, to, I mean, couch surfing to couch surfing, and they live, they live off the fat of the land, and they just need a big old kick in the butt. And sometimes when we're helping people, we're actually funding poverty. Okay, now I only have three minutes to say what I actually want to say. <laughs> Proverbs 13 20 probably says it best. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. If you hang out with fools, you will be a fool. I post that on Facebook. It didn't go well. <laughs> you shouldn't call people fools. I'm sorry, I was quoting Solomon. <laughs> if you hang out with fools, you will be a fool. I love what... Um, I love what Chaplain Ronnie Malcolm said. He said, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Some people bring happiness wherever they go and some people bring happiness whenever they go. (laughs) Everybody in this room and every person you know carries a bucket of water and a can of gasoline. The goal is to find people who will pour the water on the fire of your fears and the gasoline on the fire of your passions. Choosing your friends is choosing your destiny. Let me just say this. This is probably the most important thing I'm going to say tonight besides Jesus died on the cross for you. And people are like, you don't preach the cross enough. Okay, Jesus died on the cross for you. So that's why we're all here tonight. Okay, you got that. Good, we preach the cross. So, Sorry, that was rude. I really do believe in the cross, of course. And shouldn't have, shouldn't have made it funny. Who you let influence you doesn't just matter. It is your life. Hanging out with broken people to help them is wonderful, but who's influencing who matters. My kids, my my sons, my daughters, they all went to we went to a secular high school. And can they and, and they would ask questions like, Dad, can I have a non-Christian friend? And yes, of course. Please. Like, <laughs> please have non-Christian friends. But if you come back with a crappy attitude, you and I are going to have a conversation, and you're going to be restricted from those people until you stop acting like them. My son, I love, you know, Jason, he's amazing. And he, would, he had this non-Christian friend. I actually liked the kid. He was from a very broken home and Jason would go stay overnight there. Sometimes they'd stay a couple nights, whatever. We lived in the woods. They liked to hunt. It was all great on the weekends, and then he'd come back with this attitude, and it it happens so often. I'm like, come come here. (laughs) Okay, he's like 16. I'm like, look in my eyes. Okay, you're going to stay at Johnny's house. His name wasn't Johnny, of course. You're going to stay at Johnny's house. If Johnny influences you the way Johnny's been influencing you, Johnny's not going to be your friend anymore, and you're not going to get to choose who your friends are because you evidently don't know how to do, I influence you, but you don't influence me. So if you come back with Johnny's crappy attitude one more time, you don't get to see Johnny again. So yes, have all, listen, how are people in darkness going to know the light if you don't make friends with them? Hello. But the question is, who's influencing Who? And then, and then the second thing I wanna say, which is separate from that, is choosing people who will influence you for good. Now we're not talking about ministry. We're talking about people who are greater than you, people that are mightier than you, people that are more noble than you, people that are stronger than you, people that are more skilled than you, people that are prettier than you, people that are richer than you. Just everything you want, you'll find people who are better than you. Now let me tell you something. How do I tell if I find people who are stronger than me? When you meet them, you'll be jealous of them. (laughs) If you don't have someone in your life you're jealous of, you're not hanging out with the right people. Now, that is if you're jealous for the right reasons. And I'm using jealousy, I hope you kind of, it's a little humor involved here. I'm simply saying, if there's people that, if you're with a really big person and you're not that big, it pushes your insecurity buttons. So maybe I should say it this way, if you don't have people in your life that, don't, that push your insecurity buttons, you're not hanging out with anybody bigger than you. And here's the challenge. I'm a few minutes. I'm over. I'm okay. Sorry. I don't know how strict it is. I'm sorry. Here, here's the challenge. Let's pretend you suck at money. You suck at money. Okay, come on. We all suck at stuff. Let's just be real, okay? I don't care how good you are, there are things you suck at. I don't care if you're Bill Johnson, there are things you're not good at. As a matter of fact, if you're really good at two or three things, you probably suck at everything else. If you suck at money, the most important person you need in your life is somebody who doesn't. Here's why you don't ever invite them over. Because when they come over, now you are aware you suck at money. Because when you hang around with other suckers, you all feel good about sucking. It's absolutely true. It's like, oh, uh, you know, the world's so the government, you know, there's a five percent unemployment rate. You know, sheesh. I just happen to be on the five percent, not the ninety-five. Wonder what's happening with me. I don't know. You know, they just, there's no work here. You know, it's ready, and you can't get a job. You know, the economy's so bad. The fire, the snow, and then the rain, and then uh, a. <laughs> And you all encourage each other that you suck. And it's misery loves company. And then you make friends with someone who has transcended snowmageddon, fire, I've seen fire and I've seen rain. And they made money on the fire. (laughs) Made a fortune in the snow and they're driving a whatever car you wish you had. A red Corvette. (laughs) And when you sit with them, you feel really bad about your condition because when all your other friends are around, you all, misery loves company, trip out on how bad the world is. But when Johnny Rich steps into your life, you got no excuses. And then you're like, wow, oh, he was born with a gold, you know, a silver spoon or a gold plate or whatever you want to say. And then he tells you his story. He's an immigrant. Good. Good. Didn't speak English when he got here. Didn't have a mom and dad. And he starts telling your story. He's like, ooh, I have a lot better family than him. <laughs> and then he takes away all your excuses because he or she did the right thing and made a fortune hate rich people. So evil. <laughs> and you hang out with him and you figure out that he gives away 60% of his income and he's funding every freaking thing that helps poor people. And now you can't hate him because you actually know his story. And it's so hard. And I use wealth, but it's in any area. It's so hard to hang out with someone who has what you need because he first makes you feel worse. Not because he's trying to, not because she's trying to, but just because it takes away all your excuses. But you know what happens if you stay with the rich person long enough? And by the way, you understand, I'm just using money to illustrate, it's a thousand different things. You stay with the rich person long enough, you know what happens? You get wealthy through osmosis. Because a wealthy person, most of them can't even, like, you, know, you know, there are wealthy people who teach, but most wealthy people, they don't even know how they do it. It just comes natural. I have a friend that everything he touches turns to gold. Makes me sick. (laughs) And then now he's been my friend for five years and we hang out together and he just thinks like on a whole nother level. I'm thinking we should go to McDonald's and have a hamburger. He's like, why don't we buy the chain? This guy thinks like this. Like every week he has a new idea. He's like, you know, I think we should, you know, you want to turn writing around. We need to start a factory and hire 3,000 workers. I don't turn that around. Why don't we start? What do we start? What's the church doing? I'm like, I, I don't know. I'm Minnie Mouse over here. I don't even think like that. My friend's been a billionaire. He's, you know, he's made money. He's lost money. I, I, I'm simply saying like Henry Ford said this. I'm way over time. I feel so guilty for being this forward so sorry. Henry Ford said, burn down my factories. Take all my money. Give me back my people. And in five years, I'll have everything that I have right now, because you can't take away what's in me. And he said, everything you see around me is already in me. You see a billionaire, they lose money all the time. They lose all their fortunes all the time. You know what they do? They gain it all back, you know, because once you've been there, you know how to get there. And I'm simply saying that, and I'm using wealth right now, but it's, it's in every area. It's like there's something about wealthy people, for, as an example, that they just think differently than normal people. It's why they're wealthy. And when you hang out with them, you're like, hey, how would you invest in this? Yes, you're going to learn some of those tactics. Yes, you'll learn some of that stuff. Mostly what you learn is how to think like a wealthy person. <laughs> and you don't even realize it, but because you keep hanging around with them, like when you used to hang out with your poor friends all of a sudden not all of a sudden gradually you start to think like them and you hang out with your poor four, four friends poor friends once in a while and they and, and they're all talking about how bad this you know the state of the world is and how bad it is to live under Trump Obama the democrats the republicans the independents you know there's just everything's terrible and you and you're with them and this is what happens to you i'm telling you the truth you stop talking you start, you start thinking, I used to think like that. Gosh, that's weird. I don't even think like that anymore. Why don't I think like that? Oh, because I'm hanging around with Joe Rich. And Joe Rich is not a victim. Okay, let me close. Who you choose to influence you matters for you, for your children, for your children's children. Who you choose to let really close to you will change the life of your legacy. And I want to tell you, I chose to be with Bill Johnson on purpose 41 years ago. And when he moved, we were separated for two years. And it became really clear to me, I was born to be with this man. If I'm with this man, it will change my life. You know what I didn't understand? It changed my son's and daughter's lives. My sons and daughters, without even asking me, over a period of three years, came and sat with Bill, my sons and daughters, and said, Bill, I just wanted to tell you, you're my leader, you're my pa-. I never told him to do that. My grandchildren adore Bill, adore him, and think of him as Moses. <laughs> Elijah's like, <laughs> Elijah thinks Bill walks on water. You know why? You know why he does? Because I think he does. And I, I buried that in my daughters and sons. And you know what they did? They buried it in their grandchildren. And you know why I follow Bill? Because I love him, but I love a lot of people. Because that man makes me better. When I said, screw the church, he said, let's make it better. When I said, I hate religion, he said, let's have a relationship. Yeah. And every time my attitude growing up in poverty, no mom, no no dad, I'm sorry, I have a loving mom all my life, I a loving mom all my life. I'm sorry, I dishonored my mom, I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> no bad dads, bad people around me, live, grew up in a poor neighborhood, all the victim stuff, grew up on welfare, all that stuff. Then I meet a man who doesn't think like that. And I'm like he makes me feel guilty every time I'm around him I need that man in my life my inner world needs to change and that man changed my life who you choose to let influence you matters for you for your children for your grandchildren for your lineage you let fools influence you I don't care how this message sounds I wouldn't tweet this please but you let fools influence you and your children and your children's children will pay the price that you let fools influence you would you stand is it right if i just pray for this especially this 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 whole thing of who you let influence you god i pray that we would have the scariest people in our life scary good people people that are so noble that love you so much, that have so much character, they are so wealthy from the inside out that they would make us nervous for the first five years of us knowing them. That we'd get in their presence and there would be a real sense, an, a real sense of honor. We'd be like, I am, such, I am so honored to be in the presence of this person who knows God better than I do, who knows how to think, who has great faith, who really does love people, that knows how to lead. God, give us those kind of people and may we have the courage to keep them close when it hurts really bad. Amen. Thank you so much for the time. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast. If you want to find out more, read my blog or listen to the previous podcast episodes. Go to chrisvelleton.com.